Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you all. Today, we're closing out the book of 1 John. We've gone through it all summer, and today, we finish it. So I, I, I think that's something to celebrate. For the three of you that think it's something to celebrate, the rest of you guys are like, we're ready to move on to Revelation, which we're starting next week. And so if you didn't know that and you want to hear a sermon on dragons, you can come next week. <clears throat> You're like, Jake, I always hear you preach on dragons. You're always talking about different other fantasy stuff. So yeah, but it'll be in the Bible next time. So um, hey, as uh, we close out our time, uh, we're going to open the word of God and we're going to hear from it. So let's begin our time praying. Yeah. Father, I just pray over everybody in this room that as they sit, as they listen, as you speak through me, that you would open up our ears and our eyes to see you, Jesus, uh, come to us in, in the scriptures of 1 John. And I pray for everybody in this room, uh, your spirit knows what they need and can minister to them and can speak to them. And so I ask you to come and do that today. It's your name we pray, amen. So there's a, there's a story where a young man was coming to a therapist named Sean. He was actually court mandated because of anger management and violence. And so he begins to meet with Sean regularly and him, uh, this young man and his therapist Sean begin to build this relationship, build some trust through one another, share their stories, speak into each other's lives. <clears throat> And their time comes to an end of seeing, of seeing each other. Uh, his therapy is done, it's court mandated. So Sean, in their last session, has his file, begins to talk with him uh, about how he's gonna recommend that the judge lets him go off of the anger management. Uh, and then the young man asks Sean in that last session of therapy, hey, what's in that? And he goes, oh, it's your file. And he goes, do you have any experience with that? And Sean tells him, well, I've been a therapist for a long time. So I've seen a lot of, a lot of really broken and ugly things. Because in the file contains the story of this young man and the abuse and the trauma that he had sustained at the hands of his violent father. And so Sean tells him, yeah, I've had some experience with this. And the young man asks him, no, have, have you had experience with this? And so Sean actually begins to share more of his story and how he had been abused as a child as well. And they have this like moment of connection through it, you know, like a genuine human moment. And then, you know, their conversation kind of awkwardly comes to a wind. And Sean looks over at the young man named Will and he tells him, hey, Will, you know, it's not your fault. And Will responds to Sean, he goes, yeah, I know. And then Sean looks, at it, look, looks up again at him and he says, hey, Will, it's, it's not your fault. And Will responds, I, I know, I know. And so Sean then steps closer to him actually in that moment and says, Will, it's not your fault. And then you can sense a shift like as you're watching, right? I, I know. And he steps closer again and he says, Will, it's not your fault. 
And then Will in that moment, his face turns red and he like starts to yell and he's like, don't mess with me, doc, not you. And he just stays there. Sean, in that moment, close to him, he looks at him again and he says, Will, it's not your fault. And then in that moment, Will begins to just weep and grab Sean and break down and cry and sob and again and again say, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that was their last moment together. And if you hear that story and you're like, that sounds like the story in Goodwill Hunting. (laughs) That's because it is the story of Goodwill Hunting. You guys have heard me enough times preaching to know I don't come up with anything original on my own. I just tell stories about things I see or experience. But I didn't know this, but that story was actually written by Matt, uh, Damon, and Ben Affleck, and they pulled a lot, actually, from their real-life experiences. And that scene, which I love in the movie, communicates something that is so profoundly true about being a human being. Why do we need to repeat ourselves? Why do, you, why do you tell the person that you love, I love you multiple times? Why, why do we need to say things that we already know when we can easily respond, yeah, I know? Why do, why do we say things again and again and again? Because we don't believe it. Or we're too distracted to hear it. Or what someone says to us is so good and beautiful, but it doesn't line up with our experience of brokenness. And so we conclude it is too good to be true. Why do, why do we need to repeat ourselves? We need to hear it multiple times. I, I started off the series, if you guys remember, all the way back in the summer in 1 John, saying that 1 John, as a book, has this way of repeating itself. John is gonna take a couple of themes and then he just hits them again and again and again. Everything that I'm about to say to you in this sermon, you have already heard. You heard John Crawford preach it. You heard Will Gant and Jim and Warren already say it. If you've been reading along in 1 John, you've heard John write it again and again and again. You've already heard what I'm about to say to you. You can easily say, we know. And yet John has this thing where he repeats himself. I didn't realize this actually until I was finishing up writing this sermon at the end of 1 John. I noticed that he kept saying we know over and over again at the end, like five or six times. And so I started looking through the rest of the book. You know how many times John uses the word to know in the book? I mean, it's a short letter, right? 37 times he says in some way to know which gives you a good idea that even though he knows that the church knows, he's gonna say it again anyways. Because we can respond to much of the truth that we're about to hear and say, we know, but we need to hear it again, which is why John says it again as he closes the book. Okay, Jake, so what do we know? Well, look at 1 John chapter 5, and I want us to start in verse 14. Open up your Bibles there, open up your apps, or look on the screen. 1 John 5, 14 says this. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that whatever we have, the requests that we have asked of him. So church, what do we know? We know that God hears us. We know that God hears us, and we know that because 1 John, as a book, and John as a writer, has already said it so many times already. John already told them in chapter 2 that they all know God as a father. He told them in chapter 1 that this whole thing called the Christian faith is about fellowship and joy of being in relationship with Jesus and God as a father. He's already told them and said it again and again that the book that God loves them and he shows it through his son, Jesus. In chapter three, he says, how can we know with confidence that we stand before God since he is our heavenly father? You guys have already heard this. You already know I preached this a couple of weeks ago. And if you remember when we zeroed in on chapter three of 1 John, we talked about in our world, it is said that you are to have confidence by believing in yourself. But as Christians, how do we have confidence? By believing in what? The name of Jesus. But then we talked about how 1 John, right? John doesn't want us just to believe and feel better about ourselves. He gives that reassurance, that confidence, so that what? We might pray, that we might know that God hears his children. You already know that God loves us like children hears our voice when we pray and is attentive to us like a good father. You already know this. So why do you need to hear it again? You know God's listening to you. You know he's his father, but you need to hear it again because we live in a world with a very different story. And because the idea that there is a God who made you and sees you as a child who loves you like a child, as a good father, listens to your voice every moment that you reach out to him, that is not hard to explain, is it, church? It's hard to believe. And you live in a world and in a culture, right? We live in this age of secularism and skepticism and unbelief where doubt and uh, skepticism is a badge of honor. It's, it's a mark of being real and, and raw. And we live in a world that believes that if God is real at all, he's certainly not a good attentive father. He's maybe distant and cannot be bothered with the specifics of your life. That is the world that we live in today, and it communicates that same story again and again and again. Here's how I know. When I sit down with all of y'all in my office, when I sit across from people within this church, there are two questions that I basically ask everybody. If God was sitting next to you right now, what would you want to say to him? And then I ask, if God was sitting next to you right now, what would you want him to say to you? And then every bit of the time that I have with you, you, any moment that I can get is really aimed at, I believe that God is a good father who wants to hear your voice as a child speak to you and point you to his son, Jesus. But you're not gonna believe it. 
And so I spent all my time just, just right there just trying to help convince each and every one of you that if we try to listen to God, if we actually try to pray, he hears us and he acts towards us like a good father who's attentive to his son. But every time we pray, there are two voices like angel and demon on each side of your shoulder that try to speak up when you try to pray. The first one is the voice of the inner skeptic. And every time you try to pray, every time you try to listen for God attentively, it says, there's no way that there's a God. You look ridiculous. And even if there was a God, what makes you think that he would be attentive to you? The second voice on the shoulder is the voice of the inner orphan. Because we live in a world where it is the common story for so many of you to have a father that is absent, not attentive, and certainly not ready to hear your voice and be close to you. The voice of the inner orphan immediately speaks up and makes it impossible to imagine that God really does hear you. We know, the Bible tells us, that God hears us. We know that Jesus taught us to pray to God as Father in heaven. But you need to hear it again. You need to hear it again because it is so hard to believe. You need to hear it again because the central theme of the Bible, of a God who pursues the people of this earth, who sent his son to die is not something so hard to understand but to believe. Think about it. Why is the Bible 66 books? Because you really could summarize, I mean, I could, we could rewrite the Bible and say, here's the whole message. God loves you. God's pursuing you. He's chasing after you. He sent his son to die for you. God loves you. Why isn't the Bible just that? Make it so much shorter and so much easier because you won't believe it. And so the history of redemption, the story of the Bible is this long 66 book story that again and again says the same thing in a whole bunch of new ways of a God who is a loving father who hears his children, responds to them and desperately gives himself to them. That is the message. You've already heard it, but you need to hear it again. What do we know? Look at verse 18. What do we know, church? We know, verse 18, it says, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What do we know, church? We know that we are God's children. We know we are God's children, and because we are God's children, we don't need to keep sinning. In fact, John Crawford preached this message and communicated to you all that sin is incompatible with our identity in Christ. And sin is incompatible with our identity in Christ because Jesus came to rescue us and literally to destroy the works 
of evil, of Satan, of sin and darkness. You've already heard that message preached to you. We are born as children of God and therefore sin doesn't match our identity. You guys already heard this message actually preached when Warren preached the sermon. You guys remember he did that intro and he was talking about Lion King, which I love the story of Lion King. It is the story of this young lion cub who in the part that he's talking about loses his identity he is the prince, the son of the king. But in, in the story, the unfolding of Lion King, what, what is it, right? It's, it's nothing but a story of this young son of the king because of evil and darkness and the enemy has forgotten who he is and so doesn't live like who he is. You've already heard this message that we are children of the living God. And so even though you have heard this message, you need to hear it again. Why? Well, we live in a world similar to 1 John where we're in this in-between time. We already are children of God. We don't need to sin. God has freed us from that in his son, Jesus. And because that is true, we kind of live in this tension. And the best way to describe it that I can think of is the story of the freed slave Solomon Northrup. You might have seen it in 12 Years a Slave, but you could actually read his firsthand account of his story. And what is so powerful about the story of Solomon Northrup is really in the ending of the story, because it's tragedy. Here's a man who is free, he's living in New York, but he is captured by slave drivers, taken down into the South where slavery is still rampant, right? And the first thing they did to him is tell him that his name is Platt, not Solomon. And what they would do to instill fear and make it so that he would not live as a free man is anytime he would not identify as Platt, but he would say his name was actually Solomon, they would beat him to the point of death. And the, the story is a long tragedy. I mean, in, within the name, 12 years this goes on. It's a true story. And at the very end, what happens is that this, this man, Solomon, is able to get a letter to, to somebody in the north to find his papers to prove that he is free. And then the story ends with this amazing scene, this moment, right? If you've watched the movie or if you've read his account, where one day he's out working in the fields, and out comes along a man named Bass, who is his advocate, and the sheriff. And they walk out to him on the field and they call him out to come and talk to them. And in that moment, they need to, they need to get him to respond in such a way to prove that he's Solomon so that when they go to court, they could bankrupt his slave driver and bring him out of freedom. And so what they do is they say, do you go by any other name? Remember, he's been called Platt the whole time. And in that moment, it's this tension because I, I, whenever I watch that movie or read the book, I go, what if he doesn't speak up? And in that moment, he says, my name is Solomon Northrup. I have a wife, I have children, I am a free man. And in that moment, his slave owner just rages and threatens. But in that moment, there's an advocate, there's Bass and the sheriff who respond to the man that you need to be silent and if you ever try to come after him, we will bankrupt you in court. 
We live in a time where Jesus's work is complete. He has made all of you who call upon the name of Jesus, who believe in him, children of God. But we live in a world where Satan, sin, and death are like the slave driver trying to convince you that you're still a slave. Why does 1 John say what he has said already before? that we are children of the living God, that we don't need to go on and continue to sin, that we are actually free. Why does he say it again? Because the world that we live in constantly is saying the opposite, and so you need to hear it again. You need to hear that the work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross in the resurrection is to make you children of the living God. We're free from sin. We don't ever have to sin again. And any moment that you do, it's an identity crisis moment like Warren said a couple of weeks ago. We know, church, that we are children of God. What do we know? Look in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now I want you to back up to 1 John 5, 13. If you were to ask John, why did you write this book? Here's the answer. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What do we know, church? We know we have eternal life in Jesus. Do you remember how we began the sermon series? I talked to you about how everything out of the book of 1 John is not a concept, but it's a firsthand memory, a core memory of the apostle walking with Jesus and as he experienced the real man in real history interact with him. And when he begins the book, he's telling the church back then and us today, this that I'm about to tell you is stuff that I have seen, I have touched with my hands, I have heard with my ears, and now I deliver it to you as a testimony of eternal life in Jesus. And then he ends the book saying, this is so that you might know you have eternal life. We know we have eternal life in Jesus Christ, the man who came, and died and resurrected from the dead. But what does eternal life mean? Because if like me, you grew up around the church, you probably have heard some form of that message plenty of times. You don't even need to be around when we've gone through 1 John to hear the idea of eternal life and Jesus affording that for you preached already. So what does eternal life mean in the mind of John, in the mind of Jesus? Well, John actually quotes Jesus in his final prayers in John 17, verse three, says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is that you get to know God. The main mission of Jesus, the, his main prayer before he went to the cross is that we might know the living God of the Bible, the God who came to us. 
and that we might know him through his son, Jesus. Now, what kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Because I could throw up a slide on the screen, which I don't have, but I could throw up a slide on the screen, a bullet point list of my brother, Derek, whom I love. He used to be an army ranger. He is taller than I am. He has a sense of humor, but he's got one of those senses of humor me and my youngest brother have deduced that he's not actually funny. He just laughs at everything. So you assume when you're in his presence that he's funny. <laughs> this is amazing gifts. I could tell you uh, that he likes to golf and, and that he's a fan of my young son. But do you know him? I know him. I have stayed up till late night praying with him, crying with him over the brokenness within our lives and stories. I have sat with him on the couch and laughed as my son learns how to use his first words or makes funny faces. We have gone on adventures together out in the outdoors. We have shared our dreams together. I have cried with him, laughed with him. We have gotten in fights both verbally and physically as we were younger. I know my brother. I know him in a way that is intimate and close. And when Jesus is praying in his final moments that you would know God and that you would know him, that's the kind of knowledge he's talking about. Not that you would know about God, but that you would know Jesus and through him, the living God who came to earth. But Jake, I thought eternal life meant that we live forever after we die. You know, like eternal life. And this is not less than that. Because think about it. Everything I just described to you about my brother and I's relationship is beautiful and it's good. But there are two options for our future. I will die or he will die. And when that happens, everything that our relationship was made of will be gone. And if I die first, maybe he'll remember me for a little bit, but eventually he'll die, and then no one will remember that relationship. Death is one of the ugliest things in the world because it undoes everything beautiful. It undoes everything beautiful. And so when Jesus came, when he preached about the kingdom of God, when he talked about eternal life for his chosen people, what he was talking about was something that we might have right now in life starts today and something that even death cannot end. Something that will be untouchable by the enemy or Satan or sin or death. Eternal life given to us is that we get to be united with Jesus, with the Father, and that no amount of time, no amount of anything could ever rob us from that. That is eternal life. We know that we have eternal life. And it's because of that eternal life that we know that we can talk to our father and he'll hear us, right? And it's because of that eternal life, we know that we're children of God. We don't have to sin anymore, right? We know this, but how do we know it? How do you, I mean, that's a beautiful, wishful thinking, Jake. How do you actually know that? Let me ask you this. How does a human know anything? How do you know anything as a human being. 
based off of the testimony of others. Well, Jake, I, no, I can, I can like know some stuff without the testimony of other people. I mean, I know, I, I, like I know this chair I'm sitting on is gonna hold me. How do you know that chair is gonna hold you? Is it because you started as a young infant to like deduce through science and through a hypothesis and experiment that the structure of the frame of the chair would hold? No, your mom and your dad or your caretakers showed you what it was like to sit in a chair. And you assumed by watching them that you could trust them that you might sit in. How do you know it's called a chair? Because some human being at some point by the testimony that they gave to you told you it's called a chair and you just trusted it. And then you found as time went on that that was true. Every single thing you know as a human being ever is because ultimately at source, it comes from the testimony of another. So as John says it, right? In verse 11, this is the testimony of God, right? If you, if, you, if you trust the testimony of human beings, what about God's testimony? If you just assume the chair's gonna hold you because someone told you, what is God's testimony to eternal life? He tells us in verse six, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Verse seven, there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. We know because of God's testimony, and his testimony is a testimony of water, blood, and spirit. What's the testimony of the water? This is the moment where Jesus was baptized in water. Jesus didn't need to be washed of his sins. And yet he identified with Israel, with his people, with us, so much so that he stepped into those waters of baptism. And the moment that he was baptized, the heavens were opened and everyone around, including John, heard, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The testimony of the water is the testimony that God sent his son from heaven so that one day you might be called son and daughter with whom I am well pleased. But it's not based off of what you do because the testimony of the blood. Jesus did not just come as the man from heaven, which back then the Gnostics, which we've talked about before, they would have been fine with a man from heaven. They would have no space in their mind from the man of heaven becoming a man of suffering and a man to be crucified. The testimony of the blood is God's proof, his witness that he is so willing to give us eternal life, to make us his children, that he would give his son Jesus to die. And the third witness is the spirit. If all that we can ever know in this life is the testimony of another, how do we trust this beautiful, but really, really hard to believe testimony of God? The story that God loves you by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that points us to Jesus, opens our eyes, gives us a desire for him, awakens that within him, 
And so how I actually want to end our time today is by praying for a moment and asking the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us and point us to Jesus. And you know I like to end sermons like this. So I I just want to invite you all, if you want to close your eyes, we're going to take a moment. I'm going to walk you through some prayer. Church, you know, you know that Jesus has given you eternal life, that we are children of God, and you know that he hears you. So what I want you to do for a moment in quiet, and I'll pray over you, is ask the Holy Spirit in this moment to point you to Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to communicate, what do you need to hear again? And just sit quiet. Father, I pray for all these people in this room that they might know you, Jesus. And I ask that, Holy Spirit, you would do what no sermon can do, what none of us can do, which is to provide faith. Speak to everyone in this room the good news they need to hear again. going to respond to God. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. I mean, the only appropriate response to something like this is gratitude, right? And so that's what we're going to do. And as we sing, right, as we pray, grab somebody else and pray. We'll come aside and pray. And we're going to come up and we're going to take communion. And what a perfect reminder of the one who came by blood than by taking bread and wine to symbolize the love of God given us through his son, Jesus. And so I just pray that, God, you would continue to minister to all of your children, that you take every bit of what I said and use it that we might see you clearly for a moment in the week, 